before I get into the report, I want to do a top line thing where from the beginning, I was always for the, the investigation because obviously Trump is a seedy, seedy mafia-like dude. And obviously, it, I would not be stunned if his campaign like worked with a foreign government to uh, get elected. I'd be shocked because I covered the campaign on the campaign trail and his campaign was basically a bunch of people like running with their tails behind their leg. Uh, a lot of incompetent people and a lot of people that weren't competent enough to, you know, send out an email on time, much less coordinate or collude with a foreign government. So I was always for the investigation. What I was not for was the unprecedented level of media hysteria and speculation, basically where so-called journalists came to a conclusion and then looked for facts to support that conclusion. I was not for segment after segment, show after show, day after day, week after week, month after month, uh, you know, all this speculation, you know, uh, the walls are closing in on Trump and all this stuff. When Flint still doesn't have clean water, five years, we're going back there, tie me and Jen next week to cover the five-year anniversary and for the premiere of our documentary, uh, when you have pipelines going on all over this country and leaking, uh, when you have black men being executed all over this country and police getting off, when you have gentrification running amok, gentrification is really code for pushing big business and the donors that are the, the donors that buy off our politicians pushing out working people out of their communities so they can't live there anymore. So this is why I was against the 24-7 coverage. Now, with that said, uh, reading the report or skimming the report, I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I don't see how any objective person, I don't see how any objective person could look at this report and not conclude that President Trump not just obstructed ju justice, obliterated <laughs> justice to the point of multiple instances where he made attempts to obstruct justice. And fortunately for him, the only reason he wasn't successful is because the people he was trying to get to do these illegal things didn't do it because they basically saved Trump from himself. But that doesn't mean he, there was an intent on his part and he wasn't giving direction to obstruct justice. As far as collusion, I mean, I read the collusion part pretty intently. There really was nothing in there. Uh, there were communications between Trump's campaign and the, the lawyer in the Trump Tower uh, meeting, but there was really nothing in there that indicates that there was some sinister campaign or coordination or collusion between the Trump campaign and Russian gover government officials. Really, how I read it was this lawyer, who was a Russian lawyer, I don't know if the, why the Trump campaign would think she's a Russian government official, said, we have dirt on the Clinton campaign, let's meet. And then when they met, it ultimately didn't actually pan through. Uh, there's very few campaigns in, the, in America, in political history, that if you're told we have dirt, on, on your opponent and you wouldn't take the call or the meeting. Uh, it wasn't like it was a, an official government official from Russia. You could say, ah, it's kind of seedy that they took this meeting. It's kind of shady, but that's not illegal. And that's not 
a crime of sinister collusion, you know, the great Cold War reenactment that we've been seeing on Rachel Maddow for the last two and a half years. But with that said, just because there was no criminal collusion, which I think if you read that section, it's pretty clear. There was no like organized system, organized plotting by the Trump campaign to work with the Russian government to hack the emails, to, to, to uh, disseminate the emails or anything like that. Um, the obstruction of justice is, is very strong. And to me, I don't understand what the point of the Mueller investigation was if Mueller ultimately felt he couldn't actually charge the president with obstruction of justice because of the Department of Justice guidelines that say you can't indict a sitting president. Because it seems to me when you read this report, or at least skim it, Mueller, he didn't say it specifically in this language, but it was very clear he was, his intent was to pass this off to Congress with the tacit approval. I think he should, you know, I think he did obstruct justice and I think Congress should do something about it. Seems to me Mueller, his whole report was written in a way, I can't do anything about it because I'm not allowed to indict the sitting president of the United States, but here's all the examples of obstruction of justice and I, and I leave it to you to do something about it. Well, if he couldn't indict Trump on criminal collusion, if he couldn't indict Trump on um, obstruction of justice, then what the hell was the point of this? Th that's another discussion because I think we, as a country and a people, whether it's Trump now or another corrupt president later, we need to reevaluate this Department of Justice cockamamie guideline that you can't indict a sitting president. A president is still a citizen of America. Right? So if nobody's above the law, why is the president? Technically, while he is president, why is he above the law? Because that's what that Department of Justice guideline says. If, if, if you can't indict a sitting president, then what is a special prosecutor going to do other than looking for uh, whether crimes were committed and then just punting it to Congress? Well, let's say crimes were committed by Trump. Do you think the Republican Senate is going to ever impeach Trump and risk their behinds? It's not 1973 anymore. The, the, the days of like doing what's morally right where Democrats and Republicans come together to, to impeach Richard Nixon, who resigned before it got, that, got to that, that's not going to happen. So I just don't understand the point. If Mueller, and he put in writing, by the way, in his report, which Barr lied about, William Barr, who basically did a press conference, not so much as the attorney general this morning, but almost like Trump's personal PR and marketer and personal attorney. It was pretty shameful and pretty embarrassing. Uh, Barr basically did some spinning for Trump before the report came out. But Barr said Mueller, uh, Mueller report will show that his decisions did not were, were not made on the basis that you can't indict a sitting president. Well, the Mueller report actually says that came into play. We'll get, I will get to whether Congress should actually do anything, but Trump, I'm not a lawyer, but you know, I play one on the internet. He, he, he obstructed justice. Like Barr deciding he didn't obstruct justice is completely just Barr being a loyal sycophant soldier to Trump. And I'm one, as you know, you guys that watch us, I'm not a Trump derangement guy. I don't cover Trump that much, but he's the president. And if you, if you look through uh, the Mueller report, I mean, he clearly obstructed justice. I mean, this to me was the biggest thing. 
On June 14, 2017, the media reported that the special uh, counsel's office was investigating whether the president obstructed justice. Press reports call, called this a major turning point in the investigation. While Comey had told the president he was not under investigation following Comey's firing, the president was now under investigation. The president reacted to this news with a series of tweets criticizing the Department of Justice and the special counsel's investigation. On June 17, 2017, the president called his attorney, Don McGahn, at home and directed him to call the acting attorney general, which I believe was Rod Rosenstein at the time, and say that the special counsel had conflicts of interest and must be removed. McGahn did not carry out the direction, however, deciding that he would resign rather than trigger what he regarded as a potential Saturday night massacre. I mean, that's blinking red lights, obstruction of justice. You're calling your personal attorney to then contact uh, Rod Rosenstein and fire the special prosecutor. By the way, Trump as president had the right to fire uh, the special prosecutor, but clearly he was doing it because they were investigating him. And I want to make clear something. I want to make clear something because I think it's important. Based on uh, press reports call this a major turning point in the investigation, while Comey had told the president he was not under investigation following Comey's firing, the president was now under investigation. So just because Trump was trying to obstruct justice and get the special pr uh, prosecutor removed, doesn't mean he was trying to get the special prosecutor removed to cover up that his campaign colluded with the Russian government. In fact, I said from the beginning, if you recall, if you watched me when I was at the Young Turks, I think the main thing Trump has always tried to cover up is his money laundering in through Russian oligarchs, through Saudi Arabia and other countries. I live in New York. I'm from New York. It's, it's pretty much a known fact that since the 1980s, when he came up as this big real estate mogul, there was money laundering going on, shady deals with the Russian mafia, and many other things like that. So it's, 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 it, we don't know. It can't get in his mind. But it is possible that Trump was trying to get Mueller removed because he didn't want an investigation, period because he did not want anything having to do with Donald Trump and Russia investigated, because if that was uh, investigated, ooh, there's a lot underneath that cover when it comes to Trump, money, Russia, and money. So one thing doesn't automatically mean the other. Just because he was trying to get uh, Mueller removed doesn't, doesn't mean he was afraid of, like, there's, uh, there's some, that he did something or his campaign did something to coordinate with the Russian government. I think it was that he was afraid for an investigation, period, because he knows that if they look into his money, if they look into his financial deals with Russia dating back to the 1980s, it's he might not be indicted while he's the president. But right after he leaves that White House, he's going in that suit. He's going in that jacket. He's going in that jacket and he's going to a federal penitentiary. If, if the law applies to powerful people, which, you know, we know that it doesn't apply to the Clintons or anyone else really that makes a lot of money and has bought off the corporations, bought off the judges and bought off the oligarchy. So he might not have, he might not actually go to prison. We'll see. So that was one. Uh, Don McGahn, basically good on Don McGahn for not, you know, following up on Trump's efforts to obstruct the investigation and justice. Corey, Le Corey Lewandowski, who never officially worked for the Trump campaign, two day, uh, excuse me, not the Trump campaign, for the Trump White House. He did obviously work for the campaign as campaign chairman. 
Two days after directing began to have the special counsel removed, the president made another attempt to affect the course of the Russia investigation. On June 19, 2017, the president met one-on-one -on -one in the Oval Office with his former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, a trusted advisor outside the government, and uh, dictated a message for Lewandowski to deliver to Sessions. The message said that the message said that Sessions should publicly announce that notwithstanding his recusal from the Russia investigation, the investigation was very unfair to the president. The president had done nothing wrong, and Sessions planned to meet with the special prosecutor and let him move forward with investigating election meddling for future elections. Lewandowski said he understood what the president wanted Sessions to do. One month later, in another private meeting with Lewandowski on July 19, 2017, the president asked about the status of his message for Sessions to limit the special counsel investigation to future election interference. Lewandowski told the president that the message would be delivered soon. Hours after that meeting, the president publicly criticized Sessions in an interview with the New York Times and then issued a series of tweets making it clear that Sessions' job was in jeopardy. Lewandowski did not want to deliver the president's message personally, so he asked senior White House official Rick Dearborn to deliver it to Sessions. Dearborn was uncomfortable with the task and did not follow through. So there you have, Corey. It's like hot potato. Like, oh, I don't want to go to jail for Donald Trump, so let me stick it on this guy to, to, to basically do illegal things. And then Dearborn was like, I don't want to do this illegal thing to protect Donald Trump, so nobody did it. <laughs> so on one end, like, Kudos to these people. I mean, it was more self it was more self preservation than oh, I'm an upstanding patriot and I'm not going to help Donald Trump break the law. It's called cover your ass. Ah! I was trying not to get demonetized today, damn it. Um, the other thing is Trump is so beyond just corrupt, beyond just uh, you know like acting as a mafia boss. He's also an idiot. Had he, he okay? So you're going to have Jeff Sessions dictate to the special counsel that the investigation is now going to shift to investigating future election meddling for 2020. That's not the job of the special prosecutor. That's the job of the FBI. The FBI, the CIA, you know, intelligence agencies would, would be looking at current and future threats. So Trump, he's just an idiot. Anyway, then you have uh, the Trump Tower meeting, which, here we go. In the summer of 2017, the president learned that media outlets were asking questions about the June 9th, 2016 meeting at Trump Tower between senior campaign officials, including Donald Trump Jr., and a Russian lawyer who was said to be offering damaging information about Hillary Clinton as part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump. On several occasions, the president directed aides not to publicly disclose the emails setting up the June 9th meeting, suggesting that the emails would not leak and that the number of lawyers with access to them should be limited. Before the emails became public, the president edited a press statement for Trump Jr. by his son by deleting a line that acknowledged that the meeting was with an individual who Trump Jr. was told might have information helpful to the campaign and instead said only that the meeting was about adoptions of Russian children. When the press asked questions about the president's involvement in Trump Jr.'s statement, the president's personal lawyer repeatedly denied the president had played any role. So here, you, again, I think what Trump was really doing, it's just my opinion. I don't know. You know, you can't get in his mind. I don't necessarily think he was trying to cover, cover up these things because he was deathly afraid. Oh, my God, they're going to find that 
you know, I colluded with Putin or my campaign colluded with the Russian government to like hack the emails or distribute the emails. I think he was afraid of any, any um, inspection of him and Russia. So he didn't want to make it look like he didn't want any information really out there about his campaign meeting with a Russian lawyer that might have ties to the Russian government because underneath the pot wasn't collusion. He was worried about going to jail for money laundering. He was going worried about going to jail for having ties to Russian mafia. He was worried about going to jail for, I mean, how many, how many crooked deals might he have done with Russia? And then first you look at Russia, then you go to Saudi Arabia, then you go to the United Arab Emirates. That's my opinion. But these are all, we should also say, like, I'm not trying to uh, minimize any of this because it's all illegal. It's all corrupt. You know, we might, it's not, it's not anything that's shocking. What I'm telling you, what we're finding out about Donald Trump today wouldn't shock anyone that, that has a brain. Uh, but it's still, we, we shouldn't normalize it. This is corrupt intent. This is illegal behavior. It's not so different than what Richard Nixon did. And honestly, Richard Nixon would have not been uh, forced to resign. And he probably wouldn't have been impeached without the tape. The only difference is here, we don't have the tape recordings. If any of this stuff was on tape recordings, Donald Trump would be, him and Melania, and Melania would dump him on the way out, would be on the first first uh, flight out of there because he'd have to resign. So that's the difference here. It's not so different. Him dictating Don McGahn to get rid of um, the special counsel. Him dictating to Corey Lewandowski to make sessions, uh, you know, send a message to sessions that he needs to move Mueller off of looking into the 2016 election and start looking into meddling in 2020, which obviously shows that he was lying all along. Well, if he said there was, there's, I don't believe that Russia had anything to do with the meddling in 2016, why would he be telling uh, Mueller to start looking into Russia's meddling of 2020? Obviously, he never believed that. I think the Russia meddling thing was overblown that, you know, based on, okay, so fake Facebook pages, things like that. Even if you want to say, yes, Russia hacked um, Hillary Clinton's emails, I mean, Podesta's emails and the DNC's emails and this and that. I, I, I have thought the narrative that Russia influenced the election, that people in Michigan, that Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, that they actually changed their vote or decided their vote based on the DNC leaks, based on Podesta leaks. There's no evidence for that. I've read the exit polls in all of these states, so you don't have to. The number one thing that was the factor for these voters was trade. I'm talking about NAFTA, brought to you by Bill Clinton, endorsed by Hillary Clinton, and immigration. So, but these are not normal things. This is obstruction of justice. This, these are criminal. These are crimes. And we need to start talking, like I said in the beginning of this not live stream, we need to start talking about what is this cockamamie, ridiculous guideline at the Department of Justice that a president of the United States can't be indicted. Well, if a president of the United, if a sitting president of the United States can't be indicted, what's to stop a sitting president of the United States from doing what Trump did? If he can't be indicted, well, you could say, well, he could be indicted after. Well, so what? If the point is to get rid of a criminal president while he is president, well, it's not a guarantee you're going to be able to get rid of a criminal president um, if that criminal president's party, a.k.a. the Republican Party, is in control of the Senate. 
again, it's not the 1970s. You're not going to have Democrats and Republicans for the good of the country come together to get rid of uh, Richard Nixon, or in this case, Donald Trump, because the Republican Party is afraid. They are afraid of losing power, and they would lose power because Trump's base is still big enough that those Republicans would be voted out the next the next election they're in. All right, moving on. So yes, Trump was trying to cover up uh, that meeting in Trump Tower. Then you have, in early summer 2017, the president called Sessions at home and asked him to reverse his recusal from the Russia investigation. Sessions did not reverse his recusal. In October, in October 2017, the president met privately with Sessions in the Oval Office and asked him to take a look at investigating Clinton. In December 2017, shortly after Flynn pleaded guilty pursuant to a co- cooperation agreement, the president met with Sessions at the Oval Office and suggested, according to notes taken by a senior advisor, that if Sessions unrecused and took back supervision of the Russia investigation, he would be a hero. The president told Sessions, I'm not going to do anything or direct you to do anything. I just want to be treated fairly. Hey, Jeff, I'm not, I'm not like directing you to do anything here. I'm not, I'm not telling you what to do here. You know, I'm just, I'm just being treated unfairly. I mean, come on, dude. (laughs) President told Sessions, I'm not going to do anything or direct you to do anything. Wink, wink. I just wanted to be treated fairly. Wink, wink. In response, Session volunteered that he has never seen anything improper on the campaign and told the president there was a whole new leadership team in place. He did not unrecuse. So there you have, again, he's trying to get Sessions to act. He's not telling him to do anything or direct you to do anything, but I'm just being treated very unfairly. Trump wanted him to unrecuse. That was the subtle message there. Another one. Um, After he tried to get, uh, began to remove the special counsel, Uh, in June 2017, and that McGahn had then threatened to resign rather than carry out the order. The president reacted to the news stories by directing White House officials to tell McGahn to dispute the story and create a record stating he had not been ordered to have the special counsel removed. So the news reports started coming out that Trump had ordered McGahn to get rid of the special prosecutor, excuse me, the special counsel, and Trump wanted McGahn to go out and lie and say that's not true. McGahn told those officials, that the media reports were accurate in stating that the president had directed McGahn to have the special counsel removed. The president that then met with McGahn in the Oval Office and again pressured him to deny the reports. In the same meeting, the president also asked McGahn why he had told the special counsel about the president's efforts to remove the special counsel and why McGahn took notes of his conversations with the president. McGahn refused, refused to back away from what he remembered happening and perceived the president to be testing his mettle. So first you ask McGahn to get rid of the special prosecutor, then you ask McGahn to deny you did that, and then you ask McGahn, why are you taking notes? Because President Trump, for those of you that don't know, he doesn't have an email account, he doesn't send emails, he doesn't send text messages, and he doesn't like people making notes because mafia bosses want no written trail. They want no trail, period. And, you know, good on Don McGahn, whether it was courage and patriotism or just cover your own ass, he didn't do it. This is actually one that helps Trump and kind of 
knocks down uh, the collusion theory uh, because, you know, they were all these media outlets, including Rachel Maddow as her head. Uh, honestly, I don't watch Rachel Maddow, but I kind of want to watch tonight because I think there's a possibility that there will be live, there will be live broadcasting history. I believe Rachel Maddow's head might explode in front of our very eyes. That's pretty entertaining. It might. You know, she's going through with, a, with, with seven, 17 different color highlighters, this report. You know, she's already got 10, 10 to 15 different conspiracy theorists. It might end up that Trump, Trump uh, you know, Trump colluded with Lee Harvey Oswald. We don't know. You know, they said that Manafort had shared um, polling data of the Trump campaign with a Russian oligarch, and that was collusion. As to Deripaska, Manafort claimed that by sharing information with him, Deripaska might see value in their relationship and resolve a disagreement, a reference to one or more outstanding lawsuits. Because of questions about Manafort's credibility and our limited ability to gather evidence in what happened to the polling data after it was sent to Kalimnik, the office could not assess what Kalimnik or others he may have given to it, given it to did with it. The office did not identify evidence of a connection between Manafort's sharing polling data and Russia's interference in the election, which had already been reported by U.S. media outlets at the time of the August 2nd meeting. The investigation did not establish that Manafort otherwise coordinated with the Russian government on its election interference efforts. Basically, Manafort sharing polling data with uh, Konstantin Kalimnik had nothing to do with Russia, quote, interfering with the election. So, yeah, down goes the collusion theory one more time. Uh, here's one that shows BuzzFeed's story that Donald Trump told Michael Cohen to lie uh, before he went in front of Congress was not true. Cohen said that his statements to Congress followed a party line that developed within the campaign to align with, pres with the president's public statements, distancing the president from Russia. Cohen also recalled that in speaking with the president in, in advance of testifying, he made it clear that he would stay on message, which Cohen believed they both understood would require false testimony. But Cohen said that he and the president did not explicitly discuss whether Cohen's testimony about the Trump Tower Moscow project would be or was or was false. And the president did not direct him to provide false testimony. Cohen also said that he did not to tell the president about the specifics of his planned testimony. During the time when his statements to Congress were being drafted and circulated to members of the judicial, judicial JDA, I don't know what that means, Cohen did not sp speak directly to the president about the statement, but rather communicated with the president's personal counsel as corroborated, as corroborated by phone records showing extensive communications between Cohen and the president's personal counsel before Cohen submitted his statement and when he testified before Congress. So that kind of gives you a little bit more um, insight into that BuzzFeed story that said President Trump directed Michael Cohen, uh, you know, before he went in front of Congress, what to say. That was the first and only time that the special prosecutor, Robert Mueller himself, well, his spokesperson came out knocking down a story. So that was not true. That doesn't mean, you know, I don't know what it means when Cohen believed they both understood would require false testimony. I mean, maybe he was his personal lawyer for over a decade. Maybe they understand each other and whatever the conversation was, it was implied that Cohen was going to lie for Trump, but that's not a, that's not a legal thing. We can't correct. We can't, uh, you know, prosecute people based on 
whether one knows what the other's thinking. It's, it's about what are you, what's the communication. Here's another one. This one is bad for Trump. The president's conduct towards Michael Cohen, a former Trump organization executive, changed from praise for Cohen when he falsely minimized the president's involvement in the Trump Tower Moscow project to castigation of Cohen when he became a cooperating witness. From September 2015 to June 2016, Cohen had pursued the Trump Tower Moscow project on behalf of the Trump organization and had briefed candidate Trump on the project numerous times, including discussion whether Trump should travel to Russia to advance the deal. In 2017, Cohen provided false testimony to Congress about the project, including stating that he had only briefed Trump on the project three times and never discussed travel to Russia with him in an effort to adhere to a party line that Cohen said was developed to minimize the president's connections to Russia. While preparing for his congressional testimony, Cohen had extensive discussions with the president's personal counsel, who, according to Cohen, said that Cohen should stay on message and not contradict the president. After the FBI searched Cohen's home and office in April 2018, the president publicly asserted that Cohen would not flip, contacted him directly to tell him to stay strong. That's new. We didn't know that and privately passed messages of support to him. Cohen also discussed pardons with the president's personal counsel and believed that if he stayed on message, he would be taken care of. But after Cohen began cooperating with the government in the summer of 2018, the president publicly criticized him, calling him a rat, and suggested that his family members had committed crimes. So, I mean, what does a mob boss do? when one of his lieutenants is being investigated or looked at. You send him a message, stay strong. Meaning, shh, you don't open your big fucking mouth. Hey, Tony Soprano, you don't open your fucking mouth. You understand me? Stay strong. That's what that means. So Trump, or shall we say uh, Don, the Don, get the reference, uh, was basically saying to Michael Cohen, like, we got you, but remember, we'll also kill you. I mean, that's, and by the way, this language of a rat, I mean, this is, this is mafioso talk. So let's not, let's not sugarcoat it. Donald Trump is a corrupt mafia figure. I mean, just because I don't cover him 24-7 doesn't mean I don't see it. It just means, am I breaking anything new to you? This is why we need a progressive candidate to take him out. Because I think the best way to take him out is in 2020, not through impeachment, which we'll get to. Then we get to WikiLeaks. This, I will say, I am 120% against Julian Assange's arrest. I am 150% against him being indicted. But that doesn't mean I agree with everything Julian Assange or WikiLeaks does. And this I found troubling. On July 6, 2016, WikiLeaks again contacted Guccifer 2.0, through Twitter's private message messaging function, writing, if you have anything Hillary-related, we want it in the next two days, preferably because the DNC is approaching and she will solidify Bernie's supporters behind her after. The Guccifer 2.0 persona responded, okay, I see. WikiLeaks also explained, we think Trump only has a 25% chance of winning against Hillary, so conflict between Bernie and Hillary is interesting. I mean, I'm going to keep it real. He was trying to create conflict between Bernie and Hillary, so Bernie supporters would not, you know, go and rally around Hillary. There's multiple things connected to that. Number one, 
I don't really think he needed to create conflict because, as I said during the campaign, I don't know what these pundits are talking about, that 90 percent of Bernie Sanders supporters are going to end up coming home to Hillary. That's what they were saying. And at the time I said, I don't know if I interviewed a thousand Bernie supporters right now, if 15 percent would agree to voting for Hillary. So I don't know what they were talking about. And I don't know why Julian Assange thought that they needed to create friction between Bernie and Hillary. So to ensure that Bernie supporters wouldn't rally around Hillary. But putting that aside, that's not the role of a journalist. I mean, by and large, I, I do think Julian Assange has um, committed amazing acts of journalism. Uh, I think Julian Assange is a journalist. I think he deserves his awards. I think WikiLeaks deserves his awards. I think he's obviously put his life uh, at risk, and I think it's likely he's going to be extradited. But I don't think Julian Assange or WikiLeaks, it's the appropriate role of a journalist to be basically trying to drive the release of documents that will be hurtful to Hillary Clinton in order to hurt her and help Trump. I mean, that's what he was doing. So I could like WikiLeaks and I could like Julian Assange, you'd think he's a hero, but at the same time, this is playing political kingmaker, not being a journalist and getting and you know getting out critical information. I think I'm still 100% for uh, the Podesta leaks and the DNC leaks. I don't have any shame or regret in reporting on them and going through them and, and informing you guys of it because at the end of the day, it was all true information and it showed corruption. It showed illegal coordination between Hillary Clinton's campaign and her super PACs, which if laws existed, uh, uh, she would be in jail right now, but they don't exist when it comes to the Clintons and probably not Trump either uh, when he leaves the White House. But at the end of the day, whether I like Hillary Clinton or not, whether I think these emails should have been out there or not, it's not the role of a journalist to be basically trying to egg on, uh, you know, whom, whoever, the hackers or the leakers, that's a whole nother discussion, whether it was hacked versus leaked, to like take it, you know, stick it to Hillary and, and help Trump. That's where I draw the line. I, I think that was inappropriate. I don't think it's ethical of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange to do that. You might not like that I say that, but as I always tell you folks, I'm not here to give you what you want. I'm here to keep it real. And that, to keep it real, Assange should not have been trying to play kingmaker and, you know, strategically drop um, the, the uh, revelations, you know, just so he could take it to Hillary and screw her a little more to help Trump. I think he was not wrong to release this information or the pedestal to the DNC, but when you have it in writing right there that he's saying, you know, we think Trump only has a 25% chance of winning against Hillary. So conflict between Bernie and Hillary is interesting. Well, in the context of you're saying the DNC is approaching and she will solidify Bernie supporters behind her after, I don't know how you read this other than we don't want Bernie supporters to solidify around Hillary. So let's release this now so we could create conflict between Bernie and Hillary, a.k.a. Bernie supporters. Not, you know, not rallying around Hillary. Again, I don't even think he needed to do that because I don't think Hillary, I don't think Bernie supporters were going to be eager to rally around Hillary, both the way they were treated at the DNC, if you remember, for you that still have PTSD, if you were there, but also she picked Tim Kaine as her vice president. You think that got Bernie Sanders supporters all tickled in the, in, in, in tickled? I don't think so. You know, there's obviously, I didn't read the whole report. So those are, I, I picked out the major things. Uh, when I have time, I'm going to go through more. There might be major things that I have missed. 
but those are the things that I felt were the most important. So a few things. I basically skipped over the whole section of uh, Russia uh, targeting people through Facebook, Twitter, and all these things because I don't give a shit. Some people do. I don't care. I mean, the United States does propaganda on social media. In other countries, the United States has um, interfered in other countries' elections, including Russia. If you want to follow uh, Matt Taibbi with Rolling Stone, he was a journalist in Russia during the 1996 election, and the United States basically elected Boris Yeltsin through our meddling in Russia. So I don't really care if Russia created fake Facebook pages or, you know, the report talked about rallies that fake Facebook pages organized that like 10 people went to. Come on. I mean, this did not... This did not elect Donald Trump. So I skipped over that part. Uh, the collusion part I talked about in the beginning, I'd never thought there was any substantive proof that there was collusion. Uh, I don't think the Trump campaign being that I was on the campaign trail was smart enough to do that. And honestly, I don't think at the end of the day, I don't even think Donald Trump was running for president to become the president. So you would have to determine that Donald Trump desperately wanted to win. And because of that, he was willing to go to any lengths possible. I don't think that was actually it. I don't think Donald Trump actually wanted to win, probably till later in the campaign when he thought it was even possible. I think Donald Trump pretty much up until the convention, maybe a little bit after that, thought there was no chance he would win. And Donald Trump, because he's a megalomaniac narcissist, just loved the attention. He loved the ride. And he was preparing with Roger Ailes, former Fox News uh, president and epic degenerate, who's now dead, uh, they, they were planning for Trump TV after Trump lost. I mean, there, there's reports that Melania Trump was literally bawling. She was sobbing when Trump won. They were all in shock, shock that he won. So you would have to assume he wanted to win to go the lengths to collude with the Russian government. I never thought it was about that. I always thought Trump was trying to muddy the waters, say no collusion, end the investigation, because there's ample evidence. Oh, I'm sounding like Donna Brazil. There's ample evidence. There's ample evidence. There was ample evidence of money laundering, which I think the Southern District of New York is where the action's at because they have the goods on Donald Trump. His business deals, his company's deals, his children's deals with Russia, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, probably Israel too. I read the story for you the other day about basically these secret Democratic Party donors, excuse me, dinners, where top party donors are there. You had Nancy Pelosi at these dinners. You had Chuck Schumer at one of these dinners. You had America's mayor, who the corporate media is prostituting themselves for. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, who, I mean, I really thought Beto O'Rourke was Obama 2.0. I think I was wrong. I think Pete... Mayor Pete is Obama 2.0 because, oh my God, it's nauseating. Oh God, he's so wonderful. And how he shot down that um, nasty, you know, person at the rally who was mocking him for being gay. Listen, I don't, I, you know, I don't have, a, I don't care that he's gay. And I, I don't think it's a minus and I don't even care. I don't think it's a plus. It's irrelevant. I don't care if you're glow in the dark. Are you progressive or are you Faux progressive, and he is faux progressive. He's not for free public college. He actually said that Obama was wrong to commute Chelsea Manning's sentence. So those are non-starters for me. 
He's not for Medicare for all. He's not for a Green New Deal. And I interviewed uh, a candidate for South Bend mayor uh, a couple days ago. She didn't have some. She didn't have that great things to say about him. So what has he done as South Bend mayor other than what everybody, every other mayor in America is doing? Gentrifying downtown, making it very good for business, making it very pretty and new bars and restaurants to drive up costs, to bring in younger, young professionals, college students, and leave the rest of the city to rot. Because that's what he's done in South Bend, Indiana. So Mayor Pete, not my cup of tea, but Mayor Pete was at these secret dinners. Terry McAuliffe, who, thank God, the former governor of Virginia just announced last night he's not running for president. And pretty much the only person that cared was Terry McAuliffe because nobody cares about Terry McAuliffe other than Bill and Hillary because Terry McAuliffe was basically created out of their behinds. He was their main fundraiser and he's been tied to the Clintons for a very long time. But he was at these dinners. You also had um, Neera Tandon, uh, you know, who, I'm sorry, but Neera Tandon, I I would love to play a clip from Mean Girls, but I would get another copyright violation. Neera Tandon is the political mean girl. She is the mean girl. If you ever watch that movie, that that's her. I mean, if you watch, if you've read the articles, she actually punched Bernie Sanders' campaign manager in the chest when when he worked for Think Progress because he interviewed Hillary Clinton and asked too many too many tough questions like, you know, what about like you pushing us in, helping push us into the Iraq War? She literally punched him in the chest. She says it was more like, uh, you know, she just pushed him. Either way, she accosted an employee for asking too tough a question to Queen Hillary. So anyway, so all these secret, there was multiple secret dinners with Democratic Party donors, uh, with Nancy Pelosi was at one of them, Chuck Schumer was at one of them, Pete Buttigieg was at one of them, Terry McAuliffe was at one of them, and Neera Tandon. So I read you the article, but I want to go closer into one part that I didn't go into so much that I'm kind of thinking now. Maybe this is the real reason you have 25 candidates running on the Democratic side. Because, I mean, Congressman Tim Murphy just announced he knows he has no chance to ever become president. Congressman Eric Stalwell just announced he knows he has no chance to ever become president. Uh, Governor of Washington, Jay Inslee, just announced a run a couple weeks ago. He knows he has no shot. Um... Michael Bennett, the Colorado senator, uh, is, is rumored to be soon to announce. He doesn't have any shot. I mean, the majority of people running are quite aware that they, they don't have a chance to win presidency. And I'm not trying to be like arrogant or elitist or like, you know, a lot of people told Barack Obama he didn't have a chance early on. Like, sure, people could rise. But like a lot of the people at the lower end now know they have no chance. And by the way, I want to issue a correction because a viewer emailed me and got mad at me thinking I was intentionally leaving uh, Senator Mike Gravel out when I did a segment a couple days ago on Bernie Sanders uh, now leading uh, Joe Biden by five points in a poll. I kind of, my eyes just glossed over that Mike Gravel was in that poll. So my apologies, Mike Gravel was at 1% in that poll. And I've tried if you, if you know anyone associated with this campaign, I've tried to get an interview with the 88-year-old former senator. I'd love to interview him. I think he's super progressive. I'd love to see him on that debate stage. So sorry that I forgot to mention him in that poll. But why would you think 25, like 25 people are running? Which brings me to this paragraph. 
Unlike Republicans who use a winner-take-all primary format, Democrats use a proportional system. So candidates only need to garner 15% of the vote in a primary or caucus to pick up delegates. And even if a candidate fails to capture 15% statewide, he or she could still win delegates by meeting that vote threshold in individual congressional districts. Should no bargain be struck by the time of the first roll call vote, first roll call vote at the 2020 convention in Milwaukee, such as a unity ticket between a pair of the leading dem- delegate winners, the nomination battle would move to a second ballot. And under the new rules crafted after the 2016 race, that is when the party insiders and elected officials known as superdelegates would be able to cast a binding vote. The specter of superdelegates deciding the nomination, particularly if Mr. Sanders is a finalist, is highly unappetizing to party officials. Quote, if we have a role, so be it, but I'd much prefer that it be decided in the first round just from a unity standpoint. This is why I was not doing cartwheels uh, like everybody else when this was announced that, you know, superdelegates super delegates were no longer on the first round, but they would be on the second round. Because think about it. If you have in a normal circumstance, right, in a normal circumstance, all right, you could have a lot of candidates running for president, but you can't keep running for president if you're not winning. So most of the time, you know, after candidates do awfully in Iowa and like are in fifth or sixth place, Uh, or New Hampshire, they start dropping out like flies. This is what happened in the Republican primary. This is what always happens. You have more candidates and then they do really bad. After Iowa, their money dries up and they, whether whether it be because they can't afford it anymore to keep running or they don't want to get embarrassed, uh, they drop out. But what if there is a concerted motivation among the richest people in America, maybe even the world, but the richest people in America to make sure Bernie Sanders does not get enough pledged delegates to win on the first ballot at the convention. Well, they would have motivation to keep funding as many candidates as possible to splinter away votes from Bernie Sanders. So to, if you have more candidates running, that will splinter the vote because the voters will vote for whoever they, you know, like. So in in a normal circumstance, you might have a field that's, you know, at, I don't know, 10 to 12 going into Iowa, and that get, that goes down to five after Iowa. And then New Hampshire, you have more people drop out, and then it's, more, then it's really just like three or four candidates. But what if the strategy here is to keep as many candidates as humanly possible in the race against Bernie Sanders past New Hampshire, past South Carolina, past Nevada, all the way into Super Tuesday, because Super Tuesday, after Super Tuesday, 40% of the delegates will have already been distributed. What if all these, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but what if all of these candidates running are kind of a wink-wink? <laughs> yeah, stay in the race. You'll have the funding. Also, Bernie Sanders doesn't get the percentages he needs, even if he's winning the primaries. He doesn't get the percentages he needs because it's proportional, uh, delega- It's proportional, like this article says, that he doesn't get enough pledged delegates to automatically become the nominee. And then you have the superdelegates, meaning the Terry McAuliffe's, the Terry McAuliffe's, the David Brock's of the world. I don't know if he's a superdelegate, but Terry McAuliffe was a superdelegate. 
Superdelegates are state party bigwigs. Uh, Superdelegates sometimes are sitting congressmen and congresswomen, but they are not, the, the bulk of the superdelegates are not like progressive America. They are big money, corporate, fossil fuel loving, big bank loving, big pharma loving, Silicon Valley loving, big real estate developer loving, Democrats, or more, more easily translated, Republicans. You guys might think I'm crazy, but why else would you have all of these people that have zero chance and they know they have zero chance to become president start announcing they're running when there's already six, 15 or 16 people in the race? Yeah, I guess if you want, you could say, well, maybe they're running uh, because they want to be vice president or something else. Or maybe there's kind of a wink, wink. Hell, hell have Hell or high water, we have to stop Bernard Sanders from ever getting an inch, getting within 10 yards of that Oval Office. And that the way we're going to do that is we're going to rig the rules, meaning we're going to stop him from winning on the first ballot. Because then the superdelegates, i.e. the United Corporations of America, will decide the nominee. And let me tell you something. If superdelegates decide the nominee... Even if Bernie Sanders has the most pledged delegates, but in that scenario, he doesn't have he doesn't have enough pledged delegates to automatically win on the first ballot. He, he's in the lead, but he doesn't have enough. If superdelegates decided that, assuming Trump's not impeached, you were going to have one of the biggest electoral landslides in American history. I'm meaning for Trump, he would win by a landslide because... I can't imagine if they screw Bernie, I'd be stunned if even 10% of his voters voted for the Democratic candidate. I really would be stunned, even if it meant another four years of Trump. But you just have to think, why are they, why are all these people running? It doesn't make sense. There's only so many donors to go around. But if the donors... But the donors, because I've always said these donors and these, these Democratic Party corporate hacks, they would rather another four years of Trump than four, four minutes of Bernie Sanders as president. As Bernie Sanders once said, they would rather go down on the Titanic as long as they have first class. So you really have to start wondering, why are all these people running? And was this, oh, we'll give it on the, you know. We'll move superdelegates to the second round so they don't influence the election. Wink, wink. We'll just find a way to make sure Bernie or a progressive doesn't win on the first round. So all this, this rule and this concession by Tom Perez and the Democratic Party elite was just a smokescreen to try and screw a progressive on the first round. And that's why you have 25 candidates running. And again, we're not even done yet. There's still rumors that more people are going to come in. And by the way, Let's not, even, let's not even forget Howard Schultz as a factor. You don't think that Howard Schultz, you know, I don't, I don't believe I'm, a, uh, I'm representative of the Democrat. You don't think that Democratic donors would fund Howard Schultz to be in that race? I mean, he doesn't really need the funding because he's a freaking, I think he's a billionaire. He doesn't need uh, Democratic Party donors, but 
You don't think that the Democratic Party elites would love Howard Schultz to be in there if Bernie Sanders was a nominee? They could say they want. They could say they don't. They could say you're going to na- Ralph Nader us. And by the way, Ralph Nader didn't elect George Bush. Al Gore lost Tennessee, but that's a different story. I don't know, folks. I hope you save this this video because I'm get, beginning to sense an issue with this superdelegate thing. Because if you have, you know, even 10 to 12 options on, on when you go to the voting booth all the way into Super Tuesday or beyond that, if you still have all those options, Bernie Sanders could win those primaries and still not get enough delegates because his percentage isn't high enough because there's votes going to the Kirsten Gillibrands of the world that stay in, even though she's only going to get three or four percent of the vote. Same thing with the Cory Bookers of the world the Jay Inslee's of the world. I mean, Tulsi Gabbard, I think, would drop out if she knew there was no chance and she doesn't want to hurt uh, a Bernie Sanders. I think Elizabeth Warren also would drop out, honestly. I I got my problems with Elizabeth Warren, but I don't think she would be a part of a plot to keep Bernie out of the White House. I I just don't see that. But do I think Cory Booker would? Do I think Kirsten Gillibrand would? Do I think Beto O'Rourke would? And we're going to get to Beto more tomorrow. Do I think... um, Mayor Pete would? Hell yeah. And then there's the specter of, you know, Joe touchy, touchy hands biting. Who I still, I said it the other day, it boggles my mind why he's not, and why he hasn't announced yet. The only reason I could think of is his campaign knows there's a gigantic lion of a scandal out there that they're trying to make sure they could tame before he announces, because if they can't tame it, then he's not going to enter the race. And what I mean by that, I don't have any inside information, but obviously there's a history of Joe Biden and inappropriateness when it comes to women and young girls. So it just doesn't make sense to me when he sees poll after poll, Bernie gaining momentum, uh, Bernie crushing it financially, Bernie having over a thousand, a million volunteers. It's kind of Politically speaking and strategically speaking, suicidal to remain out. He might be, he might be the you know, former vice president. But event, after after a while, you enter too late. So you have to wonder why hasn't he entered the race yet? So I'm going to talk to more people uh, that I trust in politics and get their thoughts on this super delegate thing why so many candidates are in there, if there's a chance that it's a strategic thing to make sure there's enough splintering of the vote so Bernie never wins enough of the pledge delegates he would need to automatically win on the first ballot. These are all options. And if that's the case, folks, you thought 1968 was an ugly scene in Chicago at the DNC, you have not seen anything yet. If they screw Bernie Sanders... This convention, and I'm not stoking violence or anything like that, there better be body armor.